0: our WCBN FM Ann Arbor WCBN FM Arbor. W-C-B-N-F-M. A very pleasant, peaceful feeling. You relax deeper and deeper each downward count of my voice. Ten. Relaxing deeper. Nine. Letting the body gently begin to sink. Deeper. Eight. Eight point three.
1: Yes, it's like a push button radio. You see, twenty four hours a day. Whether you like it or not limited to a 500-mile radius now, but we're working to extend that limit. She watches for my moods Never brings me down She puts the sweetness in I wish I had a river I could skate away on, but it don't snow here, it stays pretty green. I'm going to make a lot of money, then I'm going to quit this crazy scene. I wish I had a river
2: I could skate away on. Good afternoon. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, I'm so happy to have in the studio Miley Malloy here. Miley, thanks for thanks for coming down.
3: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
2: <laughs> well, WCBN is thrilled to have you, and um, I should say we're taping the program. It's June 9th, 2017. Um, so that one's 2017. We'll put it in the time capsule <laughs> archive. <laughs> um, Miley, you're coming um, through town because you're on a, a book tour yes. for your latest novel. Do not become alarmed. Um, and you, you're reading at Literati Bookstore.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you've just come from Denver and you've got a few more dates ahead. Yes. Actually,
3: more than a few. Yeah, I'm sort of at the beginning. This has been the first few days, but it's been great. That you're holding up already. I am. I'm doing well. I'm sleeping. <laughs> Not spending too much time thinking about all the stupid things I said. Oh no! Yes, yeah, like replaying the moments. That's moment, the thing so. that keeps me awake. Yeah. That's oh. a tough thing.
2: Well, well, let's. You know what? Let's just have fun and say some stupid things okay. together today. <laughs> I'm ready. I usually try to get at least a few in every program. <laughs> um, before we go any further, I'll just read um, the short bio on the back of "Do Not Become Alarmed." Miley Malloy is the author of the novels, Liars and Saints, and A Family Daughter, the short story collection, Half in Love, and Both Ways is the Only Way I Want It, named one of the 10 best books of 2009 by the New York Times Book Review, and the award-winning Apothecary Middle Grade Trilogy. She's received the Penn Malamud Award and a Guggenheim Fellowship. And I'm so glad you're here, Miley. Thanks. Um, so do not become alarmed Um we're, we started off with a very lilting, beautiful Joni Mitchell song, mm-hmm. which should, even though it's, it's about Christmas because that's the season of the book.
3: Yes. Right. Um, it's a, it's two families who go on a cruise at Christmas. And the reason they're going on a cruise is because one of the women, um, her mother has just died, and she wants to have Christmas, but not have it be like everyday Christmas where she's going to be really aware of the loss of her mother um, and her mother was someone who listened to a lot of joni mitchell um, and, and river, cried in the bathroom and cried in the bathroom <laughs> um, and a river figures in the book, so that seemed like a thing to start with, but it does start it starts right before Christmas. It's set mostly in January two thousand and sixteen, so it feels sort of like a historical novel now, right and why so why
2: that particular um time frame, too. Like, why did you make I want, it rooted in time?
3: I wanted, I started it actually six years ago. Um, and But January 2016 was when I really picked it up and finished it. And I wanted it to be set very much in the present. Um,
2: so when you went through on, when you had the manuscript before you, did you go through and then revise... To that end, to make no, it I was just present? writing
3: it in the moment. It's just that the world has changed so much in the last yes. year. <laughs> <laughs> that that so there's um, in the con- they're in Central America and there's no ambassador in the country because the Senate won't approve um, the president's nominee. So it, it it's definitely set in a in a very particular moment in time. Um, it started in 2011. Uh, Ann Patchett and I were in Australia and we were talking about the novel A High Wind in Jamaica um, by Richard Hughes, which is a 1929 novel about kids who get taken by pirates. Um, and oh, like, do you know the novel? I don't, but it
2: connects to Treasure Island, which is mentioned in yes, Do you Not Become Alarmed. They're
3: reading, the parents are reading Treasure Island to the kids at the beginning of this book. It's very much about, that that was sort of a conscious connection because I was thinking about this book. So the kids in A High Wind in Jamaica kind of love being on the pirate ship and the pirates really don't want the kids because they don't want to get in trouble. And Anne and I were talking about how it's about kids who are in danger but don't know how much danger they're in because they're kids. And I said, I want to write a book like that. Um, And she said, that's what my next novel is going to be about. And I said, oh no, should I not do it? And she said, no, they'll be totally different because... They're written by two different people. It's just the jumping-off point. And so, has has Anne Patchett also written what? Because yes, Commonwealth, her most recent novel, Commonwealth, <laughs> is also based on a highland in Jamaica, or it's sort of inspired by highland in Jamaica. And, and the this moment that you both talked about could not be more different. Yeah. Um, so.
2: And is that a really, do you have like a, a, a friendship or a longstanding relationship
3: with Ann Patchett? I do. She's, Miley? yeah. She,
2: how so? Um, <laughs> I don't mind me being nosy. No, <laughs> I met
3: her a long time ago and, and we tried manuscripts and she's, she's one of my dearest friends and favorite writers and one of the really pieces of great luck in my life. Ah, yeah. and, and time in Australia. What yes, be we, were, we were on both on book tour. So we were able to go together. That's the great thing. I've been on book tour this week and it's, I've seen friends along the way, but it's kind of lonely. And to have someone you can travel with is really wonderful. I'm always trying to figure out if I can repeat that, but I haven't been able to so far. Well, that might be in the cards for next time. Miley. Maybe. I wouldn't put it past you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. What book tour was that that you were on I was. was sh- you said 2011? Was 2011. I, was, um, I wrote a middle grade trilogy, so they're... The Apothecary. The Apothecary. They're Cold War spy novels with kids and magic, and they're for sort of 9 to 12-year-olds. The kids in the books are 14, and then they get older. Um, oh, I can't wait to read that, actually. Thank you. I also. Thank you. Um, so, And I had written two of the books at that point. I was, on, I was in Australia...
2: So, well, so the middle grade.
3: So I'd written two two books um, and I hadn't written the third. And I needed to write the third because the second one was kind of the Empire Strikes Back book. It didn't wrap things up at all. Um, And kids were writing me letters saying, what happens next? Um, That is, wow, how marvelous. The letters from kids are really, and the talking to kids. It's been really wonderful talking to middle schoolers. They're such intense readers and they read in a way that grownups don't quite anymore. Did you, was your first book was it middle grade readers or was it the no, short stories? No, I wrote or, four books for adults without ever thinking about writing for kids. Um, okay. How, yeah. So
2: how did that happen? How did the apothecary? And then I know we'll start talking yeah. about do not become yeah, so alarmed. Because I'm <laughs> taking a, a, a um,
3: while to get there. Some friends of mine who are filmmakers wanted to make a movie set during the Cold War. So it's set in the 50s. Um there are a lot of Russian spies in it, which seemed very old fashioned when I was writing it and now doesn't feel so old fashioned oh. anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, those were the days. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I sort of thought it was going to be this quick detour. Um, and then it, it took over my life for six years, but it was great. And it's been really fun talking to kids. Um, and a lot of maybe your same the the strengths that
2: I, I see and loved when I was reading, do not become alarmed Um it seems yeah. i mean yeah i wish i had been able to take a look at the oh, apothecary also don't worry but i'm all. wondering if it isn't the same because you don't strike me as a, a writer who would write down to middle school you can't age you Absolutely students, right, can't. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs>
3: um and 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 this was sort of this is a book to this is the book i wrote after writing those those books because my plot devising muscle got so much stronger because you really have to keep things moving for kids and I like a fast-moving plot anyway but I got better at it this writing is, for kids
2: and so do not become alarmed has a complete I was pulled through this book oh thank you it was and and so it is it's it's sort of wonderful that it's coming out in the summertime too um, how do you feel about that people like banding around
3: the, the term like you know the best literary summer read or or. I'm, I'm so happy to be on those summer book lists. That, that I'm thrilled, and plus, it's a time when people have time to read, um, which is important. And yeah, anything that gets people reading books that makes me happy.
2: And this one, and this one will definitely pull you through. I hope. So. And and you said it took what well, was six years in the making.
3: Well, I start. Okay, I started it. I started. I wrote the first forty pages six years ago, and then I put it aside. And I wrote the third kids book, the third apothecary book, and then. I went on book tour. I did all of that. And then I came back and didn't know where this was going to go. I'd sort of written it up to the point where the kids go missing and I had no idea what was going to happen next as I never do. Um, you never do. I never do. I ma- never have any idea where it's going. And so, and why do you think that's part of your process? Because it's the only way I can write a good book. If I plan the whole thing in my head in advance, it would be so boring. And it's always when I have no idea what I'm going to do and I feel like I've completely painted myself into a corner and I can't get out of it, that the best things, I come up with the best things in the books. So and would an example, and I don't think this will be a spoiler alert, but would an example of that
2: maybe be when Oscar appears, like M- Maria's son, Oscar, would that be one of those shifts or maybe or,
3: yeah, I didn't know, um, or the little girl and that, 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 that other like yes. storyline that's so, running through. So it's about two families who go on vacation together and the kids go missing. That's the basic thing. Um, and I wanted them to encounter people who had a completely different world experience that from them because um, the theirs. Americans
2: are coming from a very, very wealthy, um, privileged yes. background.
3: Yes. Um they are. They're they're like LA families. They work their one of the dads is an actor and one of the moms is a movie executive, and their um, kids and are in private school. Their kids are in sort of a very particular kind of progressive private school in Los Angeles. Um, and, and you worked for Disney for a while. I did so work for Disney. You've
2: got I feel like you were using that sort of insider. <laughs> well,
3: <laughs> to sort of I've, extrapolate. Some of I've it. lived in LA a long time, and I've, I've always wanted to write, write about LA. But it's so big and so various, and I th- also think it's hard to write about a place that you're in every day because you get sort of overwhelmed with the real world detail of it. Um, so my solution was to write. A novel about LA people that's almost entirely set in Central America. <laughs> yeah, move them out of LA. <laughs> get yeah. them out of there. Put them on a boat. Yes. And I really wanted I, there's so there's a there's a child who's traveling north, um, trying to cross borders to get to her parents who are living in the states, and and I knew that I wanted them to encounter a, a child who was whose sense of danger and safety and assumptions about the world were entirely different from. So, so I knew that was going to come, but I didn't know who she was going to be. I didn't know how it was going to work. You know, I was, I'm always kind of feeling my way forward in the dark. But that's the part that makes it seem like... Oh, it changes everything. the writing interesting, what, what engages you. Yes, absolutely. If I knew what was going to happen, there's a story, I think it's Fitzgerald wrote a short story and left it on a train and someone asked him if he was going to write it again. And he said, why? I know what happens. <laughs> and i i completely identify with that i feel like i'm writing to find out what happens and i'm often kind of solving problems along with the kids in the book um one of the children has diabetes and an insulin pump sebastian sebastian just to make things really complicated when they go missing and and sort of figuring out how the kids were going to deal with that, I was figuring out how they were going to deal with it sort of at the same time they were.
2: So when you're writing these characters, Miley, like how did that become part of who Sebastian was? Because he's Penny's little brother. He's,
3: yes. So, so Penny is sort of an opinionated, bossy older sister. And her younger brother, Sebastian, is very sweet um, and has an insulin pump. And... Uh, a friend who has a child who has diabetes really helped me with the kind of the medical details and the emotional details to sort of work out what that was like, and also the practical question of how how they're going to do this. Um, someone asked me the other night how I decided how old the kids were going to be, um, and I realized that in the first draft they were younger, but I just needed them to be able to deal with this on their own, and I ended up making them older because of that. So the older kids are eleven and the younger kids are eight and six, and then they meet some Argentinian teenagers who are fourteen and fifteen and very glamorous, glamorous South American kids. And how did Sebastian like when you were picturing this character, um, like when did you know he had diabetes, for example? Um, I just wanted there to be an I wanted there to be an extra vulnerability and a, an extra danger. I mean the whole book was thinking about... Vulnerability, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Did I... I, No. I I said it mushily. Vulnerability. Um, Yes. I wanted... The whole book is about our assumptions about safety and danger and fear and parenthood. And a lot of people I love had babies while I was writing this book. And I think just thinking about how scary that is and how um, the moment you have a child, you are constantly thinking about how to keep them alive, um, having an insulin-dependent kid was going to make it much more complicated and it's kind of raise the stakes w- when they're separated. And, and in the book, you put it, such
2: a lovely phrasing, like opening a heartbreak bank account.
3: Oh, yeah. That, was, that came in very early on. Liv, who's one of the mothers in her decision, she's thinking about her decision to have children. And she says to have a child is to open an account at the heartbreak bank um, and that feels <laughs> true. I mean, it, obviously, there are so many wonderful things too that come, but but it it increases your fear and your possibility for calamity.
2: Let's take a short break, and when we come back, would you mind reading some no, for Miley? Love to. Today on the program, Miley Malloy is here. Her latest novel, Do Not Become Alarmed, um, just out. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be back.
0: Tienes unas caderas que parecen carreteras Y en este día de lluvia cualquier cosa
1: puede ¡Oh! Tenía que ser un hombre No lo trates, no No me trates de engañar
0: A ti nunca Sé que tú
1: tienes a otra mm. Y a mí me quieres para
0: ¿Para qué?
2: today on the program miley malloy is here um in the studio and in, in the midst of a book tour um that has you going across the country um with her latest novel do not become alarmed um yes and this is so um we we were just talking at the break about um the characters and how um for you as a writer, Miley, when you're in a book because you said you wrote the first 40 pages and then you had to put it down because of other parts of your writing life that mm-hmm. like that became necessary to do. Um so what happens like when you enter like when you enter back into this does it feel like you're entering into a world or do you um and are th- because your characters you do this really well i think because also because of the dialogue because the handle on how the dialogue moves but are you are you sort of walking as you walk around in your day when you're drafting a book are the characters sort of with you
3: very much so and especially when you're working on it when i put it aside and it was kind of in cold storage your your brain isn't working on it then but when you're working on it every day your brain keeps working on it when you're not sitting at your desk um, and I tend to kind of start with dialogue. My early drafts um, are very dialogue heavy and I have to kind of go back in and put in descriptions of the world so so you can see it. Um, but as what happens- see, As you're sort of imagining it, w- as you see it, yeah. Yeah, but but um, what happens between people and what happens between people in conversation is, is the most interesting thing to me. So I feel like that's where I tend to kind of start. And why, why do you think that is like the, the, that's for your, because it is, it's
2: a, it's definitely a strength of your writing and you, you're showing us so much in what's even between the lines, between the characters that are involved.
3: So much happens in a conversation. I was a theater kid and I, so I think that that I think that probably helped having taken a lot of acting classes and done a lot of theater. Um, You have a sense of all the things that are going on in a conversation and the things people are doing and feeling and what's happening with their bodies and um, things that they're not saying, questions that are going unanswered, questions that are being answered with a question. Um, I don't know. I, I just... You know, uh, there's so much going on in any conversation that's not just in the words. And how do you so when you so you're drafting and it Mm -hmm. is dialogue
2: heavy. Mm -hmm. So when you're going back, how do you um, how do you find the moments where you're like, oh, this is part where I need to show more of the scene or.
3: I feel like any time you set something aside and you go back to it, you see what's missing. Time is just the great editor. I have friends read things for me, too. And if they can't see it, then I know I I need more. Um, I I don't love long descriptions of trees and things in books. (laughs) I will say there is none. None of that. There's a little bit because they're in the rainforest. Um, But uh, not not a lot. Like, just enough so you can see where they are. But there are no long paragraphs about The trees.
2: <laughs> and I, so I'm sitting here thinking, I wonder if that's also partly because that's one of the ways the book moves so quickly, too.
3: Yeah. I I, I think that's not my natural feeling, but, but writing for kids, I mean, my natural sort of desire. I like things to go fast. I like to have things move along and feel like they're carrying you along. <clears throat> um, but I think because you so have to keep things moving for kids, that, that, that writing for kids was great training for writing this book. Um, and that I learned a lot of things writing for adults about language and character and interiority, things that matter in a kid's book too, but but I learned a lot about plot and suspense and adventure um, writing the kid's books. And I think this is kind of the combination of the two. And, and you mentioned interiority,
2: mm-hmm. um, Miley, as well. Um, is that why... The book is structured
3: with each chapter we changed perspective for the characters or what i think that's because i started as a short story writer um and my first my first book was all short stories and i wasn't sure i could write a novel um and the the i always i read books with an omniscient narrator who knows what's going on in everyone's heads at the same time and i wish i could do that but i sort of i can't i almost don't believe in it as a way of thinking about the world but a narrator who shifts and is on the side of different characters, I do believe in that. And I think it's because I because my story my chapters tend to be kind of short stories, like little mini short stories that belong to a character. So there's one narrator, but each but the narrator shifts. I don't know why I said he. I didn't mean to say he. I am the narrator, <laughs> but the narrator shifts. Um, um to be sort of on the side of each of a character in each chapter. And that was interesting because I could pass the the story off between people. And because the parents and the kids are separated, it meant I could have the kids' perspective and have the parents' perspective. Um, and, you know, the reader knows where the kids are the whole time. I think I would be too stressed out to read a book where the kids just vanish and you don't know where they are. Um, yeah, for whole chunks. For whole chunks. The, yeah. Big, you always know where the kids are. Um, and it's it's funny because kids, some people say, I couldn't read about, I couldn't read a book about kids in danger. And I, <laughs> Which is funny to me because all kids' books are about kids in danger. That's what fifth graders read all the time. Yeah. Um, Think Lemony Snicket. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but, but. What they do is get rid of the parents because you can't have an adventure if the parents are around. And I didn't realize that right away when I started writing. But that's what books. you've done, too, here. Yes, but I've stayed with the parents, oh, the parents which yeah, kids' books can, don't do. Yeah. So to stay with the parents who are freaking out, that, that's the real difference. And um, so,
2: and that's what makes this then like an adult. Yes, exactly. Adult book.
3: Yeah. Kids um, don't want to think about the parents freaking out.
2: <laughs> well, and it also gives you a chance to develop the relationship between um, the two um, female leads, Mm -hmm. um, Liv and Nora, Mm -hmm. um, was that also conscious that you wanted to, because um, to think more about the female characters in the book, maybe even motherhood Mm -hmm. and think because we have, even though Nora's mother died, we have her as a presence and how she, it's impacting Nora's life. Mm -hmm. Part of the impetus for them even taking this cruise, right? right? Um, That loss. And then we've got um, Raymond's mother, comes in much later in the story mm-hmm. um it seems like this idea and then the women their relationship you're developing as well um i just i wondered about this if this was some important to you miley um yeah. in the book it's too. yes um, because so many things are going on yes but this feels like something that's a, a real strong presence
3: it is I, I i really started with the women and children um and 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 knew that the way that they blamed themselves and blamed each other and the way I think as a mother, you're trying to hold things together and sort of terrified to think about what would happen if you weren't able to hold it all together anymore. um, That's much more of a mother's question than a father's question, I think. And so they, so, so the, and how they reacted after the kids go missing was a big part of it. At some point, originally they were friends and, I decided I was going to bring them closer and everything was going to be more intense if I made them sisters. And I told a friend who, and my sister's 13 years younger than I am. So it's not the same relationship, but I told someone who has a sister close to her in age that I was going to make them sisters. And she said, if, my kids disappeared on my sister's watch. I would murder her. And I thought, okay, they can't be sisters. <laughs> but I wanted them to be closer. And so now they're cousins who grew up together, which I think is kind of the perfect amount of closeness. And it means it also helped. It gave them a past together. And it helped me differentiate them because I think kids who grew up together kind of differentiate from each other on purpose almost. Um, so that's but it also means they've known each other forever. And that was that was necessary for this relationship
2: that yes. you wanted to explore yeah. with, uh, and how how the, how it was affected with what happened, right? Yes. The events. Yeah.
3: Um, but and then oh, and then in a, in a later in a second draft, I went back and and brought up the the husbands much more. I wanted every all the parents to be sort of vivid, um, but I, it did really start with the women. And gave them those like chapters, chapters, in yeah, chapters where they where it's in their head, in the men's head, and they're thinking about what's happened. And so
2: thinking, like looking, reflecting back on then the map that you created, mm-hmm. then were those moments that then you could use to bridge because you saw something that mm, that could be seen through
3: their eyes or developed. Yes. The story is always or, moving forward. It's it's okay. always okay, I want a chapter for Raymond here. I want a chapter for Benjamin here, but what's going to happen?
2: But did you then, with the revising of it, did you go back and then take it, like, did it, was it in somebody else's perspective already? Or did you find it that Almost by never. putting
3: them in, it was something you could bridge and deepen yeah. yourself? Yeah, more things came into the book because of those chapters, yeah. Actually, there was, one, there was one, a friend read it, and she said they need to be drinking more. They would be drinking <laughs> And so, so I had a chat The Gunter is the Argentinian dad and I had a chapter I was, I just wrote, it was night and I don't write very well at night. I write well in the morning. So I just started a new chapter and said, Gunter went to the bar. I'll just look at this in the morning. <laughs> And then in the morning, ended up writing this chapter that that made him kind of a proxy for the reader in an interesting way, just in ter- just because of him talking out the situation, talking about what's happened. Because he is, he he is not that different from the American parents, but he judges them and he can see them objectively, and and he he became a really useful character to me entirely because. My friend said they have to drink, and so I needed a drinking chapter. So isn't that funny how some things yes. that uh, someone's like, yeah. feedback or yeah. idea lead you in a whole new way? They, my, I love having I have such great readers who help me, and it's so interesting to see a book through their eyes. You know, you spend so much time inside a novel, and it's impossible to see it objectively, and you just need fresh eyes. And When do you give it to people to read, and who are your readers? Um I give it I gave it to my husband pretty early on he's a really he's very good at um, he's very good at clarity and at sort of things making sense um, and he actually said the first draft of this was too middle grade because the kids were too good at figuring stuff out so it wasn't because of the content it was because of the kids' kind of agency and awareness of what was going on and I think I'd just been used to writing middle grade trilogy this middle grade trilogy where the kids have have an incredible, I mean, kids are resourceful and resilient anyway. And the kids in this book are, but not to the great degree that they are in kids' books where they can kind of solve all problems and the people helping them were super helpful and useful. Well, and also because
2: it sounds like from your conversation with Ann Patchett, what what you were also originally interested in was this vulnerability of the the kids, like not being, well, even the families actually, like this awareness of not knowing what they, this non-awareness of what they should be on guard for yes, or aware of
3: exactly. You think it, there's a lot of that in the book of the feeling like you've you've worried about everything, so none of it could happen, and then something comes out of nowhere and blindsides you. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. So in that way, it feels like a much more contemporary book than than I expected it to when I started it six years ago. And then, and how many revisions did
2: you go through? Oh, so
3: many, so many. So I show it to my husband. I show it to Ann Patchett Reads for me and she had amazing notes. She was so helpful with this book. Um, And I, and my friend whose child has diabetes read it for me and she's a lawyer and a great reader and she was incredibly helpful. Um, And then I had two more novelist friends read it. Um, The friend who, said I would murder my sister if, she, if in that situation she read it for me um, all before I ever show it to my agent I really go and I spend months on those notes you know it's a shorter period of time as I get closer but the first few drafts when I show it to someone I spend months revising based on their notes and with the notes are you also thinking um,
2: oh this rings tr- this strikes me as true as well and I so I'll I'll really, or some of the notes where you think, oh, I didn't, I don't quite see why that's a comment. Or I guess how do you process some of the notes, especially if
3: they're extensive? I I feel like when you when you find the readers you really trust, you have to take care of them <laughs> and protect them because they are so valuable. Um, and because they know what you're up to. They in know a way. exactly, and you've and you've heard their feedback before. It's it's really, it's so useful. Mostly, I understand their notes and they make perfect sense. They're just things I couldn't see. Sometimes the notes don't make sense and I have to kind of tease apart. Sometimes there's a note, I don't think, they may have a suggestion that I don't think is the right suggestion, but what they're pointing to is something that's missing. So I have to figure out what is the thing that is missing that they are pointing to, that, that their suggestion is about. Sometimes the notes seem totally wrong and I'm not going to take them. And then like two days later, I realize they're exactly right. <laughs> Let's take a short
2: break, and and then when we come back, we will hear some of uh, some some of the novel, um, Miley Malloy's. Do not become alarmed. Out out this spring, um, with Riverhead Books, and thanks thanks to Claire McGinnis for sending the book my way. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back.
0: I can't say anymore Cause our love
2: Back, you've got living writers. I'm T Hetzel. Just today, I'm so happy to be talking to Miley Malloy here in the studio. And we just, thanks for picking the songs. And of course, it's fun to pick the songs. And this song figures in.
3: To yes, this song is in the book. Become alarmed. Um, the one of the women is trying to figure out where her kids are, and she's in a taxi um, outside a house trying to wait for someone she thinks can tell her where the kids are. And the taxi driver is listening to Nights in White Satin on the radio and says, can you tell me what this means? Can you translate this for me? And so she, with her sort of high school Spanish, starts trying to to translate Nights in White Spanish into... Nights in, sorry, oh, nights, nights, and white, white satin. nights in White Spanish, <laughs> Nights in White Satin into Spanish um, and has to decide is it um, Caballeros in Satina Blanca or is it Noches in Satina Blanca and never having really thought about it and then deciding it's Noches. Um, <laughs> and is that is that a true fact? Because I actually think I don't know why,
2: but I think I used to picture Caballeros. You, think it's, <laughs> you
3: really you think it's knights with a K? But I have no idea. I, it's it's knights with an N. Okay. Yeah, um, but I actually had this experience when I was living in Costa Rica. But a bit, I wasn't looking for my kids staking out a house. But I was not a taxi driver, when, and and the driver asked me to. Uh, I wasn't a taxi. Sorry, mis-speaking. No. Um, I wasn't a taxi, and the driver asked me to translate that song, and I really had to think about what what the word was and it was really the song it too. was really the song oh, yeah wonderful. So. it's funny how then
2: these moments right yeah. you yeah. just when you're come to a scene yeah. that's what you can you, it, it just started coming yeah. back right yeah. yeah um well well speaking of scenes would you mind yes miley
3: reading of course i would love to um <clears throat> so this is uh they've been on the cruise and they've gone ashore and a number of small things have gone wrong which uh, with the result that they are um They've gone swimming at a beach where a river comes out um, to the ocean, uh, and this is the mothers and the kids, um, and the American mothers are Liv and Nora. So this is a chapter that's in Liv's head, and one of the, song, the one of the earlier songs, shows up in here. Not exactly because it's such an old song, and there are so many songs like this, but it's, but it was basically that the earlier song. The water was warm, and the children played on the three inner tubes, their happy cries piercing the air. Liv swam alongside them for a while. She felt no current, and the water was barely salty because of the fresh water from the river. When she was tired of swimming, she told Penny to keep an eye on her brother. I'm okay, Sebastian said. I know, she said lightly. Just come in if you feel tired. She got out and toweled off. The kids kept swimming and shrieking. Pedro, the guide, produced some frozen rum drink from two thermos bottles and poured it into plastic cups. It was slushy and sweet in the heat and felt decadent, but it was so deliciously cold. The drinks were supposed to be for after the zipline, he said. The taste reminded Liv of a spring break in her lost youth, sand on her sun-warmed body, a cute boy from Arizona she had hardly known, with a compact body like the guide's. Pedro played some music on his phone, a man rapping and a woman singing. He leaned back on his elbows in the sand, singing to the girls' part. Liv didn't need a translation. It was all about sex. But Nora asked for one. The man says she's so beautiful, Pedro said. She says, don't try it. I know what you want. Got it, Nora said, smiling out at the water. This flirtation was the kind of thing Liv might have shared a glance with Nora about, if it had been someone else flirting, but she couldn't because it was Nora. It was disorienting. She flipped through a New Yorker from her bag. Nora's shadow came over her. Will you keep an eye on the kids, she said. Pedro heard some special bird call. Liv squinted up at her, astonished. Okay, she said. Then Pedro and Nora walked into the trees. Liv put the magazine down and stared after them. She lay on her back on a towel and watched the children from under her sun hat. They were strong swimmers. Hector and Isabel were out there, old enough to babysit. And there was Camilla, too, reading a mystery novel in Spanish. And Penny was watching Sebastian. The day was so sultry, the sun so warm, that Liv couldn't keep her eyes open. If she'd been driving, she would have pulled over. But she wasn't driving. She blinked and struggled and drifted deliciously into sleep.
2: Thank you, Miley. thank you so so that part of of the novel um why, why did you choose to read that that for us today?
3: um Because I think it's sort of well because it has one of the songs in it, um, and because it's before anything happens, so it doesn't give too much away um. And because it has that that um, motherhood problem of of ha- ha- can you be vigilant every second, and um, what happens if you're not? And and the way to dramatize that fear is to let the thing happen, <laughs> which then does right
2: after this scene, mm-hmm. basically.
3: Um, and and it's really the lead up to this is really a number of small things go wrong. There's not one giant thing that anyone does wrong, you know. Ever. It's a sort of series of small mistakes that leads to to what happens, which is kind of more like life, yes. Then, right? <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: did you when you were writing this part, when you were in this scene, um, did you know? This was when, because this sounds like it was part of the original forty pages that you had drafted. It's
3: not. It oh, it wasn't. Not. Okay. No. Oh, okay. No. <clears throat> Shouldn't assume. <laughs> um. I well, okay. They got into the beach. Oh, now it's hard. It's hard for me to rem. It's like an archaeological dig. All the drafts. It's so hard to remember. Um the husbands came to originally and everyone was at the beach. And then, and then the next, and I realized it was all in Liv's point of view to this point, which it's not now. It it cuts away from her much earlier now, but as I was just kind of figuring out what the book was, it was all in Liv's point of view. And then I realized, Oh no, I need to follow the children and find out what happens. Um, And then I came back to the scene and sort of made it longer and figured out what was going on and sent the men off on their own. They go golfing so that, there are fewer eyes watching, first of all, but also there's the opportunity for everyone to blame each other <laughs> um, for not being there, for not being vigilant, for for making mistakes, for making bad judgments. And that's part of what you were saying
2: earlier, perhaps, that interests you, like this, the dynamics mm-hmm. um, among and between yeah. characters? Yeah,
3: always. That's the most interesting thing to me, always. Why? I, um... I don't know. I just think that's what makes life interesting is what happens between people. That's what I think about and pay attention to and um, all those little kind of subterranean dynamics that happen between people who've known each other a long time, between people who've just met. Um, yeah. Don't you think it's... I do. I think
2: it's interesting reading reading this book, too, thinking about... Um, Cause in some ways you're like, I'm aware that it's a construction and thinking mm-hmm. about the choices that you're making. Right. Mm-hmm. And so one part of me and thinking about our upcoming conversation perhaps, right. Right. Um, but then also seeing how uh, it does feel authentic and then making, it does make you think about all of the interplay mm-hmm. uh, among everyone as we're walking around. So right. I think it's so, it, which to me signals that it feels s- successful and real as, um, as like as a story as well as this highly plot driven piece of writing. Oh
3: good. That's 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 good. I do think I mean I I definitely pay more attention to the world when I'm writing. And I think it makes me figure out what I think about things but also pay more attention to funny, you know, just stuff that happens between people. Um not that I'm necessarily using it, but it just makes me more attentive. Someone asked me the other night what what happens to the characters after the book ends, and i which I you know I don't know um I have some ideas, but I love the idea that they feel like real people who have lives after the book ends, and that there are questions about what's going to happen to them. that makes me really happy <laughs> yes, I wonder also, I feel that way with
2: Isabella mm-hmm. definitely I wish yeah. I don't know what it was, but there was a moment where I thought, oh, I wonder if Miley has another like, a, but I don't know if you work in that way. Have you
3: done that in the past with the apothecary series? Clearly, mm-hmm. it became a trilogy. Um, I definitely think about what's going to happen to them just in order to write this, and I think about things I know about them that aren't in the book. I think that's important that you so, know your characters better than. So, talk. Can you say a little more about that? Because what does that look like for you, um, knowing
2: your characters?
3: Uh, it just means having a sense, a sense of their backstory. Sometimes I've written it and taken it out um, because it wasn't necessary, but it was necessary for me to know it. Um, a sense of what might happen to them in the future that's not in the book, but it's important for me to know it. Um, How do you know to take it out? Again, when you read it over, you can feel it. There's stuff you don't need. It's like it just feels extra. And Does it
2: feel like it might be distracting or pointing distracting, the wrong It's distracting or it's
3: unnecessary or it's pointing the wrong way or it's too much there's you know there's only so much that's not in the present moment that you need and if it goes on too long it sort of takes you out of the story well the pacing would change yes definitely. the pacing would definitely change um and i and I, I also read the books i read all my books aloud to myself just as an editing tool that's what i was just gonna ask yeah, you yeah yeah um it's so useful and i read it this one more than once you hear repetitions you hear extra things you hear places where you are getting bored yourself um i mean toward the end you know it all anyway, so it's hard to judge. But when you're reading aloud, you can really tell what's extra and what's missing.
2: And it's it's because the how the language is working or,
3: or it's because not your working. eye skips over things on the page. Your eye, when you're reading to your when you're reading silently, <laughs> um, you you skip over typos, you skip over repetitions, but you also skip over kind of infelicities and things that aren't quite working. Um, and if you're reading it aloud word by word, you don't. You just read it, and you read it in a more attentive way. It's the best editing tool. That and putting it aside for a while and going back to it. Those, those. If you if you can't hijack your friends and make them read it, those are both incredibly useful right uh, editing tools for anything, for essays, for everything. And you write essays too, Miley. I do. One of them
2: wasn't there. I I didn't get a chance to read it, but I was so interested that it was um, like something like why I write children's books. although I don't have children
3: or something. People kept asking me when I was writing the kids books, they kept saying, do you have kids? And I would say, no. And they would say, well, how can you write, um, how can you write for kids if you don't have kids? Um, Which is a silly question, but I, I really feel like it helps because once you have children, you, start thinking like a parent and you identify with the parents and stories. And if you don't have kids, you keep identifying with the kids in stories. So when you hear a story about, a child you're thinking of yourself as a child in relationship to your own parents not as yourself as a parent in relationship to the children so i think it was actually easier for me to sort of access my 14-year-old self without having my feelings about my own children overlaid over that and in some ways i think it helped with this book too because it's so much a book about parenthood and obviously i've spent a lot of time thinking about parenthood and i have two nephews and a niece and godchildren and i you know i've spent a lot of time with kids in my life but um I don't know if I could have spent this much time thinking about how horrible it would be to have your kids disappear if I had kids. Um, So I think it may have helped in this case, too. (laughs) We're going to take a short break
2: today on the program. Miley Malloy is here. Her latest novel, Out with Riverhead Books, Do Not Become Alarmed. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be right back.
0: Que el día que estuviste en Urumita y no quisiste hacer parranda y fuiste de mañanita sería de.
2: back you've got living writers i'm t Hetzel today on the program miley malloy is here do not become alarmed the novel on the table with us miley thanks so much for coming by wcbn today i'm so happy it's to great. oh it's it's great to see you and um and that's tough. So this song. So thanks again for choosing
3: the songs, too. Of course. But it's so fun choosing the songs. I've never gotten to do that before. Um, that song, uh, La Gota Fria by Carlos Vives, was on the radio all the time when I was living in Costa Rica. And so it's sort of the flip side of me translating Nights in White Sash and Satin for the taxi driver. Um, I, that was a song it was on radio all the time. I loved it. I had no idea what was going on in it. And even sort of understanding most of the words, I still had no idea what was going on in it. And it turns out it's a 1938 Colombian song that Carlos Vives covered and sort of brought back. I mean, a lot of people have covered it, but his version was really successful and it's about a spontaneous accordion battle. Um, And it, it's completely (laughs) best song ever. Right. And it totally devolves into like insults and taunts, um, and and like the stakes are so high in this accordion battle that that the narrator says that his rival finally flees in a cold sweat because he can't stand that he's losing (laughs) (laughs) which is not what i would have thought it was about (laughs) no not at
2: all makes it yeah brilliant oh um so you were living in costa rica for for a time was
3: when i was 22 my my stepmother quit her job as a lawyer and went to study Spanish in Costa Rica because she thought she might want to teach Spanish um, in schools. And uh, my sister was nine at the time. And so I finished a job. And the next day I flew with my sister with some papers saying I was allowed to travel with her to Costa Rica. And I spoke no Spanish at all. And my sister taught me the colors on the plane. Um, And I had a little phrase book and I was frantically memorizing things. And I got there and it was, you know, hot crowded airport and I'm responsible for this child. and I'm trying to find our bags and And then I was so mortified by not speaking Spanish that I memorized all my stepmother's flashcards and studied really hard and stayed when they left and got a job and I had a boyfriend. And and so I stayed there for a while and I, we would go out with his friends and I would just be missing 90% of what was going on, even as my Spanish got better. Because when you're in a place where you don't really know the language that well in the culture, you're just always, a few, you're just always so many steps behind. Um, and always absorbing, too. And always so absorbing, yes, exhausting. exactly. It is exhausting. Your brain is so tired from trying to function in another language and from the awareness of all, like all the things I love in dialogue, I was not getting a lot of that. So... Anyway, so I feel like that time was sort of composting in my mind. The feeling of being responsible for a child, the feeling of being kind of um, off your game in another country, an outsider, and an outsider. Um, yeah, when, clearly so American already, too, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, you're oh yeah,
2: going down there, and so yeah. and it seems like you've had so you had that you've. It seems like you've had many different experiences because off air, um, we were talking about how you were a river guide in Utah. Oh, yeah, well.
3: that was my first job after college when all my friends were going off to be consultants and go to law school. I was a river guide for my uncle on the Green River in Utah. It was great. I loved it. And how long did you do that for? Just for the summer, Just to, and, and then I worked on a political campaign um, in the fall, and then I Took my sister to Costa Rica, and then I worked in a bilingual grade school there. Um, I had a lot of jobs, a lot of sort of strange jobs, and then I worked at Disney for a while. Um, but all that, my last year of college, I'd started, I'd taken a beginning fiction class and started writing stories, and I just instantly knew this is what I want to do. So all that time, I was secretly writing stories and not telling anyone about it because I didn't think it was a way I could make a living or a life. But you were always writing. I was always writing. And actually, my aunt Ellen Malloy is a writer, and, she, and on my days off the river when I was a ranger, um, she was writing, she had her first book coming out, and she was writing Patagonia catalog copy, which was her sort of day job. Um, so she would get samples, which was awesome, because sometimes I got them. And she worked, she, she, she just had such a great work ethic as a writer, and she was, and she really made me feel like, oh, okay, maybe this is possible as yeah, you, a way to make a life.
2: You saw someone doing it. Yeah, exactly. Who was close to you. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, it was like, great. You think about those accidents, like choosing to go and do that might mm-hmm. have made all the difference yeah. to, to live there and be on the river. Yeah, absolutely. And and so you kept writing. So you took one class in undergrad. Yes. And started writing stories. Yes in notebooks like always or what or always did you on always... the
3: computer i started writing on a computer in seventh grade and i can't write longhand at all anymore it's just i have a different voice it's terrible really um yeah i have to be typing how why um, do you think that is what what do you if you write in longhand i think it's just what i'm used to i think it's just how i got used to thinking um and the sort of mind body connection happens for me with typing. If I have to write a thank you note that has to be written longhand, I will type it first and then write it out longhand because otherwise I'll just waste stationery. <laughs> I'm so much not myself writing longhand. That's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But I
2: think it's because I think sometimes for um I think maybe for me, it might be the opposite. Really? Like, like I need to d- write. Yeah. Something.
3: And for a lot of people, that's true. They write their books longhand and then have someone type it because they feel like they are more connected to the words that way. Or, Everyone works different. Yeah.
2: It's so interesting though. And yeah. that, and when you said the mind body connection yeah. and coming through with the typing. Yeah. Um, so, so you also said that you've had these, these, like random almost jobs, which I would say like are, are writer's jobs in a way. So did like doing each of these jobs, you just, you would write still every morning. Did you have some sort of, um, yeah, like schedule that you made for yourself that you believed in, even if you didn't talk about it?
3: When I, when I got out of college, I wrote at night because in college you write at night. Um, and so that was my habit for a long time. And I had, you know, when I moved, I moved to LA and I had I taught swimming lessons to the children of movie people um, and i and then and then I got this job at Disney in direct to video animation, making sequels to the big Disney movies, and I would stay in the office after everyone left and work there because if I went home to my house and it was cold and there were messages and this is back in the days when you got your messages at home. <laughs> That's how old I am. Um, then I wouldn't start writing again. Um, but if I stayed in the office, even though it was evening and your brain is not as, my brain is not as fresh in the evening, um, I was used to writing then, and so I would write in sort of dark office building at night on my computer there. And then I applied to grad school and I did an MFA, and that was really it was to it was to tell myself I was serious about it. It was to get someone else to say I should be serious about it, which was hugely important. And um, it was a California state. I went to UC Irvine. So I had funding and a teaching job and I I had time and readers. And and so I could write. And and then I started writing in the morning um, when I think my brain is fresher. But it took me a while to shift to that.
2: And would you then, so would it be every morning? Was that part of what you would do then?
3: Or it's hard because, well, yeah. And plus, it's, it's it's every morning that I can, kind of. Um, and it has been sort of ever since. And and if I'm, I mean, the great thing about writing is if if you need to do something on a Tuesday, you can go do it on a Tuesday. So I try to write on the weekend so that I can do that. The big thing for me is if I'm writing every day, then I, as you said, the characters are still walking around with me and I and my brain is working on it when I'm not there. And if I'm not, then I have to kind of, and it's, it's, You know, it's so amazing to be able to do that. Like, I feel so lucky that I was able to find a a way to kind of protect that time so that I could use it for writing. Um, But but when you go back to something after time, you have to kind of relearn the whole thing, and so it just slows you down. And were you writing stories, Miley, at first? Always stories at first. Yeah, it took me a while. I wrote stories all through through graduate school, which I think was good because I think a story is a good size for a workshop you, you know you could, people can tell you about the whole thing they're looking at the whole thing rather than a novel chapter of a novel that isn't written where they don't know what happens and you don't know what happens it's very hard to judge that so i think stories were and i could my stories were really short so i could turn in two every time so but I, I just got a lot of help writing short stories and i and i thought that might be my natural pace the way you're like you're a sprinter or you're a marathon runner i thought 10 to 15 pages might just be my narrative limit um and so my first book it was, I took two stories out of my first collection that were linked and I made them the first two chapters of a book and they were told from two different characters' perspectives. This is why I say I think that my, my sort of novel style is based on short stories. Um, I sort of wrote story-like chapters for each, of those character, for each of the minor characters and kind of moved forward from there. So I think that's why I do that close third-person shifting narrator. But, and you started with the stories. I started with stories. And are
2: yeah. you still working on stories now? Like in your working, like how you
3: how you tick? If you're not on a book tour or right now, what I'm writing is is essays to go along with the book to be published at the same time, which is what <laughs> which is what you do. Um, so, and you know, answering interview questions and then and, and going to airports every day. So right now, I'm not writing anything. Um, when I've been home. Before this, between the books, I've written some short stories. But again, I think it's like, a, it's like a pacing thing. You get used to writing something long and you have to kind of get back in training to do the short thing. You have to get back in training to sprint again. And I think I, I've written four stories, I think, that aren't in the collections. So it will take me a while before I have another collection. Um and I will have to get back in training to do that short thing because you get used to the longer pace. Do you see the collections as also their own worlds in some way, too, Miley? Kind of. I mean, the stories are all different. They're not connected. But um, in some ways, I feel like they're connected in that I wrote them at a certain time. And so the things that I was interested in and am interested in in sort of become a thematic Link. Um, but they're set all over the world. They're not, some of them are set in Montana, some of them are set in Utah. Both of them have stories that are set in other countries. Um, but they, but they, the unifying thing is, is sort of the writer's sensibility, I think.
2: And what is your sensibility?
3: Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the real, the hardest The
3: <laughs> I don't know. But I feel like if you read those books, you can feel it that they do. Like Salinger's Nine Stories, I think that's the great model of a wonderful story collection. Or Philip Ross' Goodbye Columbus. You know, it's a the, the stories are not connected, but they're connected by the mind of that writer. And you feel it when you read it. Well, and you, I, I would say, at least with my limited
2: now <laughs> uh, <laughs> reading of, you, of, Miley Miley, <laughs> of Do Not Become Alarmed, I feel like I can see the mind of the writer oh, work good. within this. And I mm. can't wait. To read what's next, and to look in the the back editions. So, oh, thank you, the <laughs> Collection. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Come by anytime.